0: is an Odyssey original.
1: This is Kate In-Depth. I'm Rob Arch. And I'm Charles Feldman. Coke. At the White House, it's the real thing. We'll go in-depth.
2: Does California give workers and labor unions the upper hand against businesses? We go in-depth on that. Also, Twitter may have finally met its match. And we're going to talk about work,
1: sex, work, sex. We'll leave it at that. Work and sex? Work. Sex. I don't know. What a combination. We start, though, with cocaine at the White House. Tyler Pager is a White House reporter for The Washington Post. Tyler, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I'm trying to recall, and I have to admit I'm coming up blank, the last time there was a story about an illicit drug found in the White House. I'm sure it's happened in the past, but it's the first one I could recall. Um, It is unusual, or maybe it's not.
3: Yeah, uh, I have. I've not been covering the White House for uh, decades, but I can tell you that this is the first time in my recollection that uh, I recall illicit substance like cocaine being found at the White House.
2: So explain uh, for us where the cocaine was found. What area is that accessed? uh, what kind of people access that area?
3: Yeah, so it was found Sunday evening by Secret Service officers um, in an area that um, is highly trafficked. It's the ground floor of the West Wing. Um, and it was found near these small cubbies that when you go on a tour of the West Wing, uh, you are told you have to leave your phone in those cubbies. So it was found in the vicinity of of, of, of that area uh, on the ground floor um just off West Exec Avenue, which is the um, road that uh, separates the the White House, the West Wing, from the Eisenhower Executive Office building.
1: So is the thinking that the cocaine was left by a tourist or a worker at the White House, perhaps, or or what?
3: So the Secret Service is investigating that. They are not saying who they believe it to be, um, given that it was on a Sunday evening, the president and his family were at Camp David, out of town. Um, some White House staff are speculating that it, it was likely associated with somebody on a tour of of the West Wing, given that tours are are scheduled for uh, evenings and weekends. Um, but the Secret Service is still investigating, and they're also downplaying the the ability to. Uh, identify uh, how it uh, how it got there, saying that the area is highly trafficked and there are a lot of people coming in and out. Um, though, uh, 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 as may be obvious, every person that enters the White House complex has to go through airport-like security um, and, and and input their information, and their social security number, um, date of birth, that type of information into a system. So, every person that steps onto the White House complex is is in a database.
2: It's interesting you say they're downplaying their ability to identify who this might have belonged to when one would imagine there are cameras, uh, surveillance cameras, and especially in areas where uh, tourists, uh, civilians, if you will, can go in and put stuff in cubby holes or even uh, employees at the White House. So uh, is there have you heard about anything about surveillance footage?
3: Yeah, our understanding is that there, are, uh, you know, there are cameras that are, there's that, that list. Um, that the Secret Service is investigating all of those things, um, and and we're sort of waiting to see what what they might turn up from that.
1: Are White House employees on a regular basis tested for drugs? I'm curious.
3: Yeah, there is random drug testing for employees, and any use of illicit substances like cocaine is is banned.
1: And do they pub- make public the results?
3: Uh our understanding is that, no, they're not public, um, though uh, I think there would be cause for dismissal given that White House uh, employees by and large have security clearances, obviously to varying degrees um, that uh, uh, the use of illicit drugs would impede one's ability to obtain and keep a security clearance.
2: Uh, if I'm understanding correctly, it was found on Sunday. Were there any tours of that uh, going through that area on Sunday?
3: Yes, our understanding is that that there are, are, are tours uh, that weekend, like there are every weekend, um, where White House employees uh, are able to tour guests around the West Wing, um, and 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 these are separate from East Wing tours that are more uh, open to the public. Uh, a West Wing tour, in order to to receive one, you must uh, be accompanied the entire time by a uh, an active White House employee.
1: What was the amount?
3: We we do not know that.
1: Is that because they didn't disclose it or didn't want to disclose it?
3: Yeah, the Secret Service has not uh, uh, specified an exact amount. We know that it was in a a small plastic baggie.
2: All right. Thank you so much. Uh, And that is our uh, guest on the segment about cocaine to the White House. Tyler Page, White House reporter for The Washington
1: Post. Good luck if you're searching for a cheap auto mechanic. Fixing cars now is getting much, much more expensive. And we're all paying for it through insurance. David Welch is the Detroit bureau chief for Bloomberg News. Author of "Charging Ahead," GM Mary Barra, and the reinvention of an American icon. David, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So uh, I gather that the days of uh, if you get a, a you know a kind of a dent in your bumper and you take it in and they say oh that's going to be about a hundred dollar repair and you go oh, okay it's a hundred bucks but it's worth it those days are gone.
4: Geez, I can't remember the last time I walked into a body shop and they didn't quote me at least five hundred bucks <laughs> um, just to walk in the door. But yeah, things are a lot more expensive these days for a bunch of reasons. we'll talk just about internal combustion vehicles to start. Um, you know, all those gadgets that keep you from you know changing lanes if somebody's there. They they warn you if you're veering out of your lane too much, or adaptive cruise control that tells you if you're getting too close to someone up ahead. Lots of sensors, lots of electronics, and you can have a fender bender, uh, side mirror taken out, and there might be sensors in all those things, uh, and electronics cost money. And you'll probably end up, instead of just uh, a body guy being able to maybe knock dents out, they'll probably have to replace the whole piece if any of those electronics uh, have been damaged in the wreck or even, even in a minor accident. All that costs a lot more money, uh, and also... You know, these days, car companies have to meet tougher fuel economy rules. They're using more aluminum, more lightweight materials. All that stuff is more expensive. Uh, I think I went once uh, with slight damage on a hood, and it ended up being not too bad to fix because the hood was steel. But the the body guy told me that if it was aluminum, they'd probably have to replace the whole hood. Whereas if it's steel, they can knock the dents out and, and, you know, just repaint it, which is a lot cheaper than a whole new part. So... A lot of these new cars, lightweight materials, technology, gadgetry, that stuff is expensive to replace and fix.
2: Is it because of, well, how much is it due to supply chain issues on the electronics?
4: I don't think that's really uh, what it is. I mean, you may have issues there where you're going to wait longer to get a part or something like that. But um, and, and supply chain's always kind of lurking somewhere in the background, if not the foreground these days. But really, if you're comparing a car you bought 10 or 15 years ago compared to one in the last four or five years, there's just so much more technology on board, and it's all over the car. Uh, and That's where a lot of the cost comes in. And we haven't even talked about the cost of uh, fixing electric vehicles. Okay, then then,
1: then, then let's do that now. (laughs) Let's talk about the cost of electric vehicles.
4: Look, the most expensive thing on board an EV and one of the reasons the cars themselves are are pricey to purchase in the first place is the battery. And if there's any kind of damage to the battery, that's going to be really expensive to fix. And uh, in fact, um, there's some reports recently that insurance companies are actually totaling them more often because of the cost of fixing EVs and just total it out and give the owner a check to buy something new. Does it by, by the way expensive.
1: does this does this apply to batteries for hybrid cars as well or no
4: um it probably would just less so because there's less of it you know the, with, with most electric vehicles the battery makes up most of the floor. of the vehicle makes up a lot of the structure so if it is in an accident you're almost definitely going to get some damage to it with hybrids if that battery is damaged yeah that's going to be that's going to cost you more money it's just it, the wreck may not hit it because it's not the entire, uh, almost the entire footprint of the car.
2: With more and more people buying EVs and uh, becoming a greater percentage of vehicles on the road, do you see repair prices ever coming down, or is this just the new normal?
4: I'm not sure I see the price of anything coming down, period. Um, And and (laughs) I say that, you know, not to sound cynical, but you look at the price of cars these days, everybody said, oh, you know, as soon as the semiconductor shortage, uh, you know, fades a bit, Car companies will have more production. There will be more inventory at dealerships, and prices will come down. You've only seen it a tiny bit. Uh, cars are still very expensive now. GM said today that their average transaction price in the second quarter was fifty-one, almost fifty-two thousand dollars, and that's kind of where it's been for a while. So, the vehicles are still expensive. The repairs will still be expensive, and if the repair shops and the parts companies that make like the repair parts can get the money, they will.
1: You know, you talk about the difficulty of replacing parts. I, I had. Uh One uh, uh, market manager for a major car company here in LA tell me that one of the problems is you can't find mechanics who know really how to deal with all the electronics. So even if perhaps the individual component can be fixed, their first choice is just to remove it and replace the entire thing because they don't understand how to fix it anyway.
4: Yeah, I think there's, there's probably some truth there. You're... You're talking about uh, those who can fix electric vehicles, you know that that's something that's still on the come. you know that the, the car companies are all basically training their techs to do this stuff, which means you probably don't have a lot of people out there among the independents who know how to do it necessarily. Uh, in fact, GM said a few quarters ago that they were because they've been training techs to do this, and and Tesla doesn't have a lot of repair shops, they're actually getting a fair amount of business from Tesla vehicle owners because they can do some of the repairs. So, so EV owners are, are kind of hunting around. There's kind of there's precedent for this. In, in the 2000s, Audi was growing sales and leaps and bounds, and they weren't growing service base fast enough. So people were waiting many weeks to get their cars replaced because there was just so much growth, and they didn't have service-based capacity and, and enough techs to do it. And I think you'll, you'll you'll often see that with vehicles or types of vehicles or technology that, Uh, is growing quickly. The the service side can't keep up, and I think you'll probably see that with EVs for a while.
2: All right, thanks so much. That is uh, David Welch, Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News. Thousands of hotel workers in L.A. were on strike before returning back to work today. Uh, Hollywood writers are still on strike. Port workers just reached a labor deal. So all this taken together, does that mean that unions and organized labor making a major comeback in California? John Logan is our guest, Director of Labor and Employment Studies at San Francisco State University. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Hi, glad to be on. So
2: is this a new age of union power that we're witnessing?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think over the past couple of years, we've seen a lot of developments, both in organizing, you know, at places like Starbucks and Amazon and Trader Joe's and Apple retail stores, but also in terms of established unions, um, taking more militant, more assertive action to try and get a better deal for their members and as you said a lot of this has been concentrated in california i mean california has been a strong union state for a long time it has um, 2.6 million union members which is higher than any other single state in the country but we've seen a succession of disputes you know in the hollywood writers um, the iowu the union that represents dock workers uh the support staff at the LA Unified School District and now as you said um you know up to 15,000 uh hotel workers in Southern California walked out which was the largest uh hotel strike in the country for years and part of what's going on is that uh you know a lot of these workers were really hammered during the pandemic you know, especially in the the hotel hospitality sector But also because of inflation, the tight labor market and sort of skyrocketing cost of living, a lot of them are determined now to make up for lost ground. You know, over the past few years, wages have not kept up with inflation. And now they see, you know, you have um, in some cases, more assertive union uh, leadership, uh, but just a a desire from from the union membership for, for bolder action. So, you know, as, as you said, you were taught, uh, people are calling it p- potentially hot labor summer. So that it, it is part of a nationwide trend. You know, there's a potential strike coming up um, at UPS involving over 200,000 Teamsters. Uh, the, the UAW could be on strike against the big three auto manufacturers um, in the early fall. So, you know, there's definitely something going on. And in recent weeks and months, a lot of it has been focused um, on labor disputes in Southern California.
1: Yeah, I I was going to ask you uh, before you mentioned the potential strike by uh, UPS drivers, which, of course, would be nationwide, uh, why we're not seeing we're seeing some examples of this uh, drive uh, either for unionization or for, uh, you know, a better stab at collective bargaining in other parts of the country. But it has been seemingly centered here in in California being kind of ground zero. And I was going to ask if that's because of the kinds of jobs that people tend to have in California. And are they different, by and large, than what most people do for employment elsewhere? Or is that not the reason?
0: Yeah, in in some cases it's to do with the sectors and the industries that are located in California and especially Southern California. So you know, as you were saying, a dispute at the ports of Long Beach and LA was you know threatened major disruption with uh, the country's supply chains, but that's now been settled. Uh, with the Hollywood writers' strike and the potentially you know tens of thousands of uh, up to one hundred sixty thousand uh, actors. Uh, you know, potentially going on strike against Hollywood um, studios; those are, are obviously industries are located in Southern California. The hotel workers, you know, that's a combination of things. Is you know, L.A. and Southern California has for many years been a stronghold of the the union Unite Here that represents uh, hotel workers. You know, so L.A. is one of their strongest cities. But as I said, I mean, the cost of living. For many of these workers in the hotel industry, for example, is just becoming, uh, you know, know, their wages are falling so far behind that many of them say that they can't afford to rent in Southern California. So there are particular problems here, even in industries that uh, exist all over the country Mm. uh, to do with inflation, to do with the high cost of living in coastal California in particular. So it's a combination of these factors, right. you know, the industries are located and unions being strong in Hollywood, unions being strong in the West Coast docks, but also um, issues uh, that, you know, affect workers nationwide, but, you know, are, are even more of a problem, you know, in terms of, uh, you right. know, the, the cost of living and wages falling behind right. inflation. Right. So I think we're likely to see more of this, in both both nationwide, but especially in California.
2: Okay. Uh, John, uh, thank you so much. John Logan, uh, Director of Labor
1: and Employment Studies at San Francisco State University. You're listening to KX in Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman.
2: Will Meta and Mark Zuckerberg kill Twitter? That might be the plan. Meta is launching something called Threads.
1: Yeah, it's uh, apparently similar to Twitter, but I guess without all the controversy, <laughs> in that it allows users to write and comment on posts. With us now is Mandy Hoskinson, owner of the L.A.-based marketing agency Zole and president of the Social Media Club of Los Angeles. Mandy? Hello. Are you there?
5: There you are. I'm here. <laughs> so
1: I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm fed up with Twitter. I mean, I've been using Twitter for a long time, and I'm fed up with it. I mean, I'm fed up with with, with tweets by Elon Musk. I'm fed up with, <laughs> you know, one day you can You know, look at so many tweets, the next day you can't. One day you have to pay to get certified, the next day you don't. Um, Is it time, finally, for a credible, useful, viable – I'm running out of adjectives – challenger to Twitter?
5: It absolutely is. And a lot of people have stepped up to the plate before Meta did, right? There's Mastodon, there's Blue Sky, but they don't have the developer team, they don't have the backing, and they don't have the existing brand that Meta does.
2: You know, I've tried uh, Mastodon. I found it a little too complex to navigate there because it's it's a federated systems. They're spread out, different servers you join with a specific server. Uh, I have tried uh, Spotable, which is uh, pretty good. Uh, Post is good if you're in the world of journal- journalism. Uh, I think there are some uh, other services. Tribal, I think I, I found. And while they all have good things about them, none of them feel like, to me, they're going to get that critical mass where they would actually challenge Twitter. Can Threads do that, or or can Blue Sky, once that gets open to the public, do that?
5: It's interesting. I, I've been debating with people a lot about Blue Sky because I think they're really trying to copy Clubhouse's popularity by being limited and by being referral-based only from the beginning. But you know, it's it's going to take some significant people to enter the platform for people to want to come, right? There's going to have to be something that you can't get elsewhere. Leah Haberman, she's the UCLA social media instructor. She said it's going to need entertainment. It's going to need sports it, and it's going to need news. And I thought that was interesting. Like You're going to have to hit multiple demographics for enough kind of critical mass to reach the app so that it can stay around.
3: Or could we
1: end up in a situation that we now have with streaming where, you know, unlike the days when you had three TV networks and a hit show got, you know, 40 million viewers, we now have a universe where a hit show has like 8 million because it's so decentralized. Could we end up with that for social media? There'll be so many variations of Twitter that you'll never get that critical mass you're talking about.
5: Uh, That's fascinating. Right. So uh, one of the articles of us, Andrew Hutchinson or Leah, she they said that if they got 18 percent of Meta's users onto this new app, then they would already be bigger than Twitter. And so not only is it possible that people might be willing to app switch, though we know that that friction, like having to switch between apps is a really big pain point to users. And if they can just stay in one place, they will. But, you know, Meta, Meta already has that user base that it can ride. And what people are thinking is that people that never signed up for Twitter or never really used it might give this a try because they know meta.
2: You know, I think you just touched on something interesting. I think a lot of people uh, haven't realized because for years and years it was Facebook and Twitter, Twitter and Mm -hmm. Facebook, as if they were equal in some way. But I think Facebook has always been so much bigger than Twitter. The user base of Twitter was always so much smaller than Facebook. Do I have that right? Yes, you are. So, uh, Twitter it maybe was just a bigger thing in our minds than it was in reality.
5: Well, and we have to remember that journalists love Twitter and journalists write news. And so I really do think it's partially just the bias of the industry where tech loves it. Journalists love it. Tech is a huge industry. So we just hear a lot about it. News doesn't really break on Facebook. Um, so you know, your friends are there, your family's there, your sewing group's there, whatever's there, but that's not where news is breaking. And so you just didn't hear it about it as much. You didn't see it as much in headlines.
1: Well, it's kind of like, uh, for example, CNN, which has always had a relatively small audience, but it's the kind of you know what some people call the right audience of opinion leaders, journalists, government people. so it its impact is is much greater than the numbers would suggest. And that has been the case with Twitter, hasn't it?
5: Definitely. Yeah, it's it's smaller, but it's higher impact individuals.
1: So what does a a a successful opponent to Twitter need to do to get those opinion leaders, journalists, government leaders uh, to come on board? What do they have to do?
5: yeah so they've started so they have been sending briefs since at least may to large individuals uh, on how to use the app how to get on and early access so from screenshots that are leaking um, it sounds like netflix is already there of course uh, some moseri and zuckerberg are there and so they have actually already started teaching uh, large individuals about how to use the app This is something that Instagram also did. And I think it's interesting to note that meta is better at lifestyle media, right? So it's uh, showing people your life, telling people about your life. And this is going to be a reading app. And so you need to get people to use it who want to read and you need to get people to use it who Are worth reading. So that's who they're going to need to sell. Uh, It's unclear if they're going to try to chase their own demographic, which they should, and if they're going to try to chase sort of a new demographic, especially like younger users who might just want something new and edgy.
2: All right. Mandy Hoskinson, owner of the LA based marketing agency, Zole.
1: Well, most of you are probably working. And if you are, if you work in an office, you know that traditionally there are things that you really are kind of not supposed to talk about uh, at the office or job site. And usually
2: sex is uh, one of those things on the top of the taboo list. But the Wall Street Journal reports that some younger people are now talking about sex at work, even with their bosses. That's what I don't get. I know. That's the part that's weird. Yeah. Uh, Yuri Kruman is a human resources expert and CEO of HR Talent and Systems Consulting. And Abigail Lev is the founder and director at Bay Area CBT Center, which helps people by using cognitive behavioral therapy. Thanks, uh, both of you for joining us. I want to start the first question to Abigail. Uh, who specifically are, is having these conversations about sex? Why with their bosses? And what kind of sex talk are we talking about?
6: Well I think the interesting part is that they're having it with their bosses that's the part I find strange. I think it makes sense to be chit-chatting about sex with your colleagues at work or especially outside of work if you're hanging out together and that used to be common before the me too movement and things that have happened. Uh so people are talking about their date life, you know, and and their marriage and uh their 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 relationships and sex. I don't know what it's a more combination unique. To bring that up to your boss, I would assume that it's not the boss bringing it up.
1: Well, I don't know. I, I, you're a I mean, you're a, a, an H.R. expert. Uh, I, I, what would you imagine an employee would be talking to his or her boss about sex? And wouldn't that be kind of dangerous territory to venture in? Um, you know, transparently,
7: I'm not sure that
1: uh,
7: with the presence of an HR guy, <laughs> people are going to talk much about sex. <laughs> um, I'm not really sure where this is coming from. I mean, I know that this exists clearly, but it's not something that generally takes place when when I'm around. I might get uh, reports of it uh, after the fact, you know, third hand. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose this sort of thing does happen. I just I only get, you know. I get it third-hand afterwards.
2: Yeah, Yuri, it seems to me that uh, once you hear about uh, somebody talk about sex with a boss at work, it's it's when you're, you're having to take uh, some action and recommend uh, something to do with, like, letting somebody go.
7: Yeah, I mean, it's a crisis management issue, and, you know, it's usually very strong wording, and you kind of have to consult some sort of a lawyer in-house or outside. Um I'm a lawyer by training even though i don't practice so this this sort of stuff i mean i certainly take it very seriously regardless of whether it's a rumor or real you know i have to investigate it i have to make sure to speak to both parties involved if there is a complaint and even if there isn't a complaint but some people are let's say offended i certainly have to look into it very seriously and you know maybe i have to wag my finger a bit and point to the employee handbook and Maybe uh, do some renewed training. That's
1: the usual protocol. Abigail, I wonder if if you think that uh you know so long as there's no uh issue of uh, you know coercion involved if if the skittishness traditionally about uh, employees discussing sex among themselves at the office or maybe even with their their boss is because America has always been compared to some other countries, for example, a rather prudish society.
6: Yes, that is correct. Absolutely. I mean, if you're thinking about certain organizations and tech companies, uh, you might know your boss before you get hired. They might have been a friend of yours from college that then invited you into their startup. You might already have had these types of conversations with them before. So it it means we need to have better training and and distinguishing between chit-chatting about you know, what in America we see as controversial versus actual coercion and people feeling uncomfortable.
2: Yeah, I I do wonder, uh, Abigail, if it's also partly uh, due to the fact that the younger generation maybe don't have the same hangups that an older generation does. And so that that comes out in the area of like they don't see an issue of talking about sex with a boss as much as they talk about sex with their colleagues.
6: Absolutely. I mean, they're more about sexual expression, uh, you know, a, a gender identity. They're more open and flexible about this topic in general. So it makes sense that it would be uh, coming out in other areas because we spend a lot of time at work and it's become more important for people to be authentic at work and to have real connections. And so it makes sense that sex would be a part of that.
1: Yuri, I. Uh... This must present, though, a a really sort of interesting situation for an HR person, because what do you do in a situation where perhaps two employees are overheard uh, discussing, you know, very graphic, perhaps, uh, sex, um, and somebody else reports them to HR, but the two people who are having the discussion are perfectly comfortable having it?
7: Uh, well, <laughs> things get really hairy then because um, you know the complaints can come from a place of discomfort. We have to take into account, you know, that okay, we have the background of Me Too and uh, all sorts of other considerations. So, you know, it's it's a very fraught kind of minefield that we enter, and we have to be extremely careful again about investigating what actually happened and what was said, and you know how the person that reported it uh, feels and you know, we may have to wrap some knuckles. We have to point again to some kind of employee handbook, perhaps to legal standards. Perhaps there's, you know, the equivalent of a performance improvement plan, things of that nature. So not not to, um, you know, over, <laughs> over-legalize over it, but unfortunately there's not much choice, right? If we're, if we're talking about this kind of thing, it usually, when it gets to someone of, of my level, it usually means it's, it is pretty serious. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's quite a lot of risk involved, legal and otherwise.
2: All right. Yuri a crewman, human resources expert, and also Abigail Lev, founder and director of the Bay Area CBT Center. So that's going to do it for KNX In-Depth today. Charles, uh, you and I should go maybe uh, into the boss and talk about sex a little bit and see how it goes. I think I'd rather have lunch. Some some field work, as it were. <laughs> lunch does sound better. We'll be back for more KNX In-Depth tomorrow at 1 p.m.